You are listening to Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs. All right, today we're talking about ocular dermatology. Boy, those, I'm sure my white forehead, you have to wear sunglasses to see the bright lights coming off of that baby. Uh, listen, I did this talk a year ago at a different conference and, um, and someone asked me if I'd come and do this talk here. If you have already seen it, I just want you to know I've put a lot more into it. I put about another 20 or 25 hours of reading and changes to this presentation. You know, when I first was asked to do a talk on ocular dermatology, I was thinking, okay, rosacea, ocular melanoma, atopic derm, contact derm, I can think of four or five things. Well, I started getting into it and suddenly I had a list of almost 38 things on the differential that we could see in our clinic. And I was like, 38, holy. I was like, OMG, Jesus, take the wheels. No way I can do 38 things. So what I've done is I've tried to narrow this down and group it and organize it so that um, it'll be something that you can take, take away with you. More than meets the eye. I have no conflicts uh, at all, and there's really nothing that's branded or uh, commercial in this talk at all. All right, so eyes are a big part of culture and history. And you can see from the Samaritans to the Egyptians to cultures overseas, the eyes, the gateway to the soul, a symbol of uh, protection. You can see the eye of Horus and the Egyptians, who is one of their gods of, of protection and health, the sky god who looks over us. And our founding fathers put an eye on the back of the dollar bills, so it's kind of like the eye of God watching over our nation. And so, you know, our eyes are is an important thing that we look at all the time. And you can see that even, even our culture, from the uh, giving them the stink eye episode of uh, Kramer, um, all the way down to you'll shoot your eye out, kid. Eyes are a big part of what we do. And we can do a lot of stuff to our eyes. We can choose to do things to our eyes. And I just want to go over some of these things that you may one day choose to want to do, or maybe you already have, or maybe your patients do. Now, the piercing around the lateral aspect of the eyebrow, or around the eye, I mean, that's, this is so common. I mean, I'm sure half your, grand, your grandmothers have this, right? I mean, it's just out there. But, you know, if you want to kick it up a notch, you can kind of rope it through your eyebrow or you can put a big hook on the end there, you know, so that uh, you can be kind of pulled around by it. And, you know, my daughter plays lacrosse. Both my daughters play lacrosse and they have to have eye protection and you play racquetball eye protection. Or, you know, if you don't have to worry about buying that stuff, you can just go for your own eye protection, have it there all the time. And then if you spontaneously want to play lacrosse and just get out on the field, you don't have to worry about going back to your car and getting your eye protection to play, you know. But if you don't really want to have to pierce the tissue around your eye, I mean, why not just pierce the eyeball itself? I mean, you know, it's, just, it's platinum or titanium, and you can just place it right in the conjunctival, the papillary conjunctival, and you can pierce the eyeball. It's pretty cool. It's actually not piercing the eyeball, but peeling back that bulbar conjunctiva and placing it in there. And, you know, I think the earliest documentation I could find of was 2013 in New York City, where all great things start. And if you pay three grand at that time, the price has probably gone up. You can have a permanent eye jewelry implant. You can also tattoo the eyes. I mean, it's nice to be able to close your eyes and have it look like you're still staring at someone. You know, this looks pretty cool. I consider doing this. Or, you know, I really like this right here, where you can have a series of ticks crawling around your eye. Yeah, that's pretty cool, you know, if you want to be an advocate for Lyme's disease or Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever. But why not just tattoo the eyeball 
I mean, why put tattoos around the eye when you can actually have an ink permanently deposited on the sclera of the eye and come up with all kind of rainbow colors? And this is from the bodymodificationexperts.com, their, their website. And there's some problems that started popping up when this procedure started becoming popular a few years ago, and they just wanted to let it known that, you know, the short version is that eye tattoos increase pressure in the eye, which is connected to glaucoma and blindness. The risk seems to get worse in time. So it's possible that we may see the perfect nightmare of eye tattooing thanks to people not waiting and everyone wanting to jump into the boat and get it done before the long-term risks were established. Excellent advice. I agree. So, if, uh, when I, if there's anything you can walk away with, it's that as we practice dermatology, we shouldn't be looking at things, but we should be looking for things. It's a big difference. My first three years in internal medicine, I looked at things. And then I ran out of the room and I went and got my Fitzpatrick's guide and I tried to match the rash to the, to the picture. But when you get into the dermatology, you're starting to look for things to support in your mind. You're either building or shortening your differential based on what you're looking for. Specific collaborative features, specific attributes that can contribute to what you're looking at. So, I mean, we got this heliotrope sign on the upper eyelids. And um, it's violaceous and pink in color. It's confined, sharply demarcated upper eyelid and face. And then you've got these proximal blood vessels on the proximal nail folds around the eye, around the fingers itself. You know what, uh, Brian? I think you may have the previous talk loaded on because I'm not seeing some things pop up on this that were in that, okay? And then the, you can see here that you can have this erythematous change on the top of the shoulders, which we call the shawl sign. And when you get the heliotrope, if you're just looking at the eye for nothing else, and you don't look at the nails, and you don't look at the top of the shoulders, and you don't look at the back of the hands where the gotrim papillus form, and you don't do all those things, you don't look for all those things, then you don't get the diagnosis of dermatomyositis. So that's what I'm basically talking about. Don't just look at things, look for other things to support the diagnosis. All right, and that's what we are being trained in our, in our supporting each other in doing because we, I'm not gonna go over this because the lecture yesterday that Dr. Clark gave was just fantastic on, on these conditions and what to look for and how to diagnose them in current treatments. So, in other words, there's no substitute for the correct diagnosis. And Brian, also, I don't have a timer running up here, so I'm not sure on, on my time, because I don't have a watch on, so. All right, so um, there's no substitute for the correct diagnosis and one item differentials are big problems. If you like spending time with lawyers, then walk out of the room with a one item differential every time you see somebody, all right? We don't do that in primary care. If every single time you saw someone with chest pain, you only had one reason for chest pain. If every time you saw someone with a headache, you only had one reason for the headache, it would be problematic. And it can be that way in dermatology as well. Because we can have a diagnosis based on anatomical location. You can learn it that way, right? What do you commonly find on the nose? What do you commonly find on the eyebrows, right? You can look at gender, how Grover's is more common in men, but periodermatitis is more common in women. Molluscum in kids, SKs in adults. Or you can do it based on anatomical locations, how we're gonna focus on the eye today. So I've grouped this talk loosely into things you find on the eyeball, ocular findings, things you find directly around the eyeball, periocular, or things you find more outstanding and periorbital and that's how we'll kind of break it up. 
All right, thank you for the timer. I've got that. Eye shape and color can identify us, but so can things around our eye, not just your eye shape and color, but things you find around the eye can suddenly become identifying features for us as we see this dermatosis papulosis nigra, kind of a variant of SKs. Most people agree that that's probably what it is. Cosmetic in nature, not a concern, tends to follow family lines, and we see these quite a bit, obviously more in skin of color. But you can, yeah, are you able to switch over that talk, Ryan? Because I'm seeing these coming out of order. <clears throat> Let me get back to the right order because it'll help, help it flow. See if that, there we go, thank you. I know we're in the right one now. Okay, so again, things in the periorbital region. Favier-Rakichaud syndrome, nodularitis, typically in a male, typically older, more so in smokers. You get this aging of the skin, you get this trapping of this uh, sebum in the skin and they get this collection of blackheads that surround the lateral orbital rim. Mostly whites, strongly associated with cigarette smoking, a cosmetic concern. So things can be a kind of around the eye, or things can cut right through and the eye can just be in the way. Because you can kind of see this line here, serum pigeonous. See it coming across right here. And what does she suffer from? She suffers from a KOH deficiency. Someone who decided to not do a scraping and missed the tinea diagnosis of tinea corpus growing across her face, up here and all the way around. We like to call it tinea incognita. That means that we missed it the first time, so we give it a fancier name, meaning it's, oh, it's, it's secretly there. So already, if your differential diagnosis is expanding, we can already see that you can say, all right, well, this is DPNs, all right? This is heliotrope with dermatomyositis. This is 5 a show. And our previous slides got kind of skipped. This is called an angiosarcoma. This, this will probably come up and angiosarcoma, which is a, a, a vascular tumor that can potentially be deadly. And we see here that we have our lovely eye tattoo. So you're already expanding your differential. So we've looked at exogenous changes, tattooing, et cetera. Oh boy, I'm gonna have to go back. Hold on a second. Brian, I'm gonna... I'm sorry, folks, but getting this out of order. Oh, well. Okay. All right, folks. I will go with it. So we're going to look at orbital anatomy then. I apologize. Okay. So external eye anatomy. I just want to make sure that as we say things, you know what we're doing. The papillary fissure, which is what you see between the eyes. The limbus is the edge around, around the iris itself, and then the pupil in the center. As we get into the side structures, the muscles, the, the side pieces, and most importantly, this right here inside the eyelid, the bulbar conjunctiva, compared to the palpebral conjunctiva and the fornix is the edge where these two, the gutter or the top of this or the bottom of this meet itself. Important things to keep in mind as we look at things. The myobian glands, 
but you've got about 25 to 40 on the upper lid, about 20 on the lower lid. These little glands are the ones that put out kind of a waxy material that hold tears in place, kind of forms a film over the top, a little oil over the top to keep your tears in place. And these myobian glands can be problematic and problems can pop up with them. First off, just right off the bat, is just your standard board question, you know, the old uh, having to go recertify, Chalazion versus Sty. And you can see the myobian gland right here, upper lid myobian gland. When that becomes clogged, it's called a chalazion, all right? If the eyelash itself is going to become clogged right here, the sebaceous glands, that can create uh, what's called a sty or horiolum. So styes actually can be internal, bacterial, and involve the myobian gland. That's an internal sty because it's a bacterial infection. Or it can be external and involve the whole pilosebaceous unit on the eyelash itself. That's an external horiolum or sty. The difference is that chalazion only involves the myobian gland and is not considered infectious. Therefore, the chalazion uh, um, is going to be non-tender and where the sty is typically red, inflamed, and tender because of the infectious component associated with it. So now, DPN, heliotrope, 5A show tender, red, swollen, asti, cordiolum, angiosarcoma, sorry you didn't see those photos earlier, and then non-tender swelling of the myobian glands, called a chalazion, sty up here. All right, so let's look at the orbit. Panicula versus pterygium. Panicula is a yellowish to white colored, sometimes pink growth. It's usually deposit of fat, proteins, or calcium. The trigium is actually an extension of the bulbar conjunctiva as it grows towards either on the medial or on the lateral aspect and can cross over the limbus and begin to block the iris and the pupil itself. The panicula itself can be on both sides. And again, you see this yellow deposit that's there. You can become infected with the panicula, and that's a little bit different. It's kind of a form of conjunctivitis. Talk about bacterial and viral conjunctivitis. It's typically more of a paniculitis, where if you have a panicula, it becomes rubbed and irritated, gets exposed, and it can become secondarily infected with virus or bacteria. Pink eye treatments. But look, I mean, the pterygiums are such a common problem worldwide. I mean, they have textbooks just on handling how to handle pterygiums, because the surgical ex uh, excision of these, there's a high recurrence rate where they peel this back and take it down to the base, and you can see it can be bilateral in nature as well. So, you know, a few years ago, used to, when we had someone come up here for the first time and say, we want to tell you how we're treating uh, hemangiomas in infants, we can now use this topical beta blocker and revolutionize the way we treat things. Well, we're, trying, we're starting to see that a little bit in the treatment of pterygiums as well, because persantine, which has been around a long time, it's an antianginal drug, has now been able to be diluted and put into an eyedrop form. And this uh, dipermineral, which is persantine, now can be used as an eye drop. And you can see a drop once a day. This is at one year with breaks in between, complete resolution of the pterygium itself. So this has become a topical treatment that has much less recurrence in the surgical excision for them. Okay, what else do you see directly on the eyeball? Well, you can see effects to the people. With Horner's syndrome, where the two are different in size, anioscoria, which is the term for that, people's different in size. It can be physiologic, it can be sometimes congenital. But with Horner's syndrome, it's loss of the sympathetic innervation, right, to, the, uh, to that area, travels along the third trigeminal cranial nerve, and therefore they get ptosis of the eyelid, constriction, and loss of sweating in that area. Another kind of board, board question itself. 
It can happen from a stroke, a tumor, it can be uh, iatrogenic, it can be neopathic, a number of different things. It can be congenital. And you got your typical PAM. Do you, would you like to meet PAM, Horner, ptosis, anhydrosis, and mitosis? So this guy comes in, he's got a droop of the lid, but it's because most surgery had to take out this nerve and he's got a drooping of the lid. He's got very dark eyes, but you can see his, his pupils are the same. This is one of my patients. But if you wanted to confirm, and I know you probably all keep a, in your pocket some liquid uh, cocaine, you know, then you can put a couple drops of liquid cocaine into the eye. And you can see over here when the person does have Horner syndrome, this eye does not dilate in the presence of the liquid cocaine. Uh, it, it, can stay constricted because it's lost that sympathetic innervation and it cannot react to it. And so you can just, just tell the officer, I, I keep the cocaine for testing Horner syndrome on my patients and, it's, and I'll write you a note saying that you heard this lecture. So you can also have different colored eyes, right? And this is a brownish in color and then all blue in color, what's called iris heterochromia. And sometimes it can be very striking when it's complete, when it's totally two different eye colors itself. It can sometimes be partial as well, where you can have half a color in one eye or spots in the eye that are differently colored, or it can be central, right around the center. So you can have central heterochromia, you can have partial heterochromia, you can have complete heterochromia with two eyes that are two different sh shapes, I mean not shapes, but color. If it's congenital, if you're born with the, two, with the two different eye colors, there's a whole host of things that it can sometimes be associated with. And the majority of the time it's associated with nothing, but these are all the potential things that have listed as potential having complete heterochromia associated with it. If it's acquired, means it comes on later in life, a lot of things can cause the iris to begin to change color or pick up an area of, uh, of variant coloration through eye injury, eye surgery. This is the big one that's come on the market lately, and this is listed as it can potentially cause heterochromia with Latisse, but even diabetes has changed eye color and central retinal occlusion, so a number of things if it's acquired or comes on later in life. But, that, I mean, that doesn't mean it's melanoma because they've changed colors, but the question is, are you recommending melanoma to your melanoma patients' screens once a year? Who does that? I hope we see 100 hands, 100% of hands in the air. Right, diagnosis of melanoma, ocular melanoma, but anywhere between 2,500 to 3,500 cases per year. But the idea initially, was, and my thought, my first several years of doing was just that they have to go to the eye doctor because you only find melanoma in the back of the eye. Well, I'm gonna show you how that, that's not necessarily the case. Because while this is partial heterochromia, this is uveal melanoma. All right, so you can see melanoma right in your clinic. This is an atypical growth of color not noted before. It's on the outside of the eye. How's that happen? I thought only the ophthalmologist could dilate the eye and see, see melanoma in the back of the eye. Well, it's rare. It can be aggressive. It's not uncommon for the patient to have no symptoms at all. Sometimes they can have light changes, vision changes. And this is why we tell folks to wear sunglasses. But here's how it happens. We know that as we develop, we have the ectoderm, we have the, the mesoderm, and the neuroectoderm. The ectoderm is what becomes all of your ecron glands, the outer layer of the skin, the epidermis itself, and the nails. The mesoderm is what becomes the dermis, the muscle, the fat, cartilage, etc. How many of you have, uh, in your years of practice, have diagnosed a basal cell sarcoma? Anybody seen a basal cell sarcoma? And what about, and then another, uh, it would be extraordinarily rare to find a squamous 
cell sarcoma? Any of those? Well, it's kind of a trick question. The reason that we only see basal cell carcinomas and squamous cell carcinomas is because by definition, if a skin cancer or a tumorous growth comes from the ectoderm, the embryological origin, it is called a carcinoma. If it comes from the mesoderm, it's called a sarcoma. That's why sarcomas are bone tumors. All right. That's why any structure that's vessel. That's why if you. That's why Kaposi's sarcoma is a is a tumor of the inner lining of a venule, and vessels come from the mesenchyme, come from the mesoderm. And so, but the neuroectoderm is a little bit different because the neuroectoderm, as we're forming, it separates out. You see this separation here? And the neuroectoderm then populates and spreads throughout the body. You see the melanocytes come from the neuroectoderm, which means that as the eyeball is being formed and it's kind of invaginating and forming here, you've got the ectoderm on the outside, you've got the mesodermal portion of it, but the neuroectoderm populates the whole area. And what it basically means is that you could have melanoma anywhere where neuroectoderm lands. With neuroectoderm in origin, you can have it in the retina. You can have it in the ciliary muscles. You can have it down here in the surface uh, epithelium with ectoderm. You can have it in the cornea. So anywhere that's ectodermal or anywhere that's neuroectodermal, muscles of the iris is where melanoma can end up, and that's where you can see it in all these locations. You can see melanoma in the front and the ciliary body. You can see it in the iris. You can see it in the lower portion. You can see it in the back of the eye as well. So, that's why this is a melanoma. See, it, doesn't look, it looks a little funky. This is a melanoma. And that's why I tell all my patients when I'm doing their complete body exam, look right at my nose. Stare right at my nose. Because I'm looking at their eyes to see if there's any color change. And then I tell them to look up at the ceiling and I pull their two eyelids down to look at the upper and lower conjunctiva. Because this top, this is partial heterochromia right here. And this is uveal melanoma right here. When in doubt, send to the ophthalmologist. Let them be the final say on it, but just know it can exist. This is a little more obvious to me, right? This is pretty strange, expanding to the sclera, ocular melanoma. This is beginning to involve the conjunctiva, the bulbar conjunctiva, kind of like a pterygeal growth, but it's involving some melanoma in that, right? And you can see right here in the inside of the eye. You can see it right here, again, involving the bulbar conjunctiva, and you can see it here as well. Kind of scary stuff. Now, you can have moles on the eye, too, right? If the pigmented cells have gone there, it doesn't mean the pigmented cells are always going to show up as melanoma, because this is a benign congenital melanocytic lesion, and this is acquired, uh, primary acquired melanosis. You, know, you see primary acquired melanosis often on the penis or in the vaginal area where they get these labial spots. Well, you can see this on the sclera of the eye as well. So. If this is conjunctival nevi right here and right here, and this is conjunctival melanoma and, real, and down here, then you look at those two things and you say, referral. All right? Send them to the eyes. So, oh, so again, we're expanding our differential diagnosis, right? Con congenital blancitic nevus, partial heterochromia, conjunctival melanoma, uveal melanoma, panicula, pterygium. I mean, you guys are practically becoming ophthalmologists. Now, what about this? 
This doesn't quite look like a melanoma, but it sure looks funky, right? It's not pigmented. Is it a non-pigmented melanoma? I couldn't find any cases of non-pigmented melanoma on the eye, so I don't know if that means they're always pigmented or just no one's written about it or I couldn't find it on my literature search. But turns out that, you know, you can develop squamous cell in the eye too. And you can have paranormal invasion of the eyelids and all the areas around it trigeminal nerves, and the extraocular nerves, and the facial nerve, and these are examples of leukoplakia that will develop into outright squamous cell carcinoma. Panicula leukoplakia, tough to tell the difference. Referral. And if you want to carry around right beside that bottle of liquid light, uh, cocaine in your pocket, you want to get yourself a bottle of this Toledon blue stain, and you can pop it on someone's eyeball here, and this little growth, and it stains. See how much stain it picked up? That's squamous hyperplasia. Down here, partial stain. Biopsy showed it was just an actinic keratosis. Of course, we know they're on a spectrum. So you've got an AK on, on your eye heading towards, of course, this is going to be treated pretty aggressively as well. Because it goes to this. You know, this is, you know, how many folks? It's only been there a week. I didn't know it was, I didn't even notice it. But you can see the progression, and these are very scary photos. And most of the photos of that obliterated eye are actually come out of the continent of Africa, where that version of this equatorial, um, what, what they call ocular surface squamous neoplasia, or ocular squamous cell carcinoma, over 75% of the cases are HIV positive. Um, younger crowd, two-thirds are women. When you pick up squamous cell carcinoma uh, in first world and, and, the, and the U.S., it's typically an older male. It's got tons of sun, never wore sunglasses, and had some changes in his eye, left it alone, and it developed into a squamous cell of the bulbar conjunctiva. But you know what you can do? You can add a third bottle to your pocket, and you can just put them on liquid 5-FU. How many of you guys uh, write uh, fluorouracil to make sure you're treating that AK in the eyeball? You know? You see a little spot on there, you're not sure what it is, you don't feel like you want to refer, you feel like you're pretty confident it's an AK on the eye, just write them for 5-FU and put a couple drops in there, no. But the reason that this, I put this up is because when they remove those large squamous cells now, the great study came out of Kenya showing if they use 5-FU four drops a day for three weeks post-surgical, it dramatically reduces the chance of recurrence took the recurrence rate down from 36% to just 11%. And you can get it on GoodRx for $48, hey? All right, ophthalmologist, what is this? Congenital, partial heterochromia, conjunctival melanoma, uveal melanoma, squamous hyperplasia, right, leukoplakia, pterygium, panicula. DPN, dermatosis papillosis nigra, heliotrope sign, 5A rocket show, sty, angiocarcinoma, and schlazon. So, if that's bulbar conjunctiva, what's this? This is in our clinic. This is why I look up at the ceiling, pull it down, whoa, okay, I'm glad I do that. You're the first person in my entire practice that I've ever actually found something inside there, but I'm glad I do it every time I see a patient for their physical exam. Ended up being that uh, my colleague, Joe Langshaw, ended up uh, having me come in and look at this patient with him. And we sent the ophthalmologist, had a biopsy, it came back as blue nevus. Ophthalmologist is kind of like, oh boy, I'm still going to do a larger wedge resection of it to make sure. Came back blue nevus on second biopsy as well. Took it all off. Now look at my nose, now look up at the ceiling. 
The question is, did you find it? Remember I was talking about just look at things, look for things, all right? Look for things. Interesting presentation of a congenital nevus that is across the eye. You can see embryologically where it's settled right there, and as he opens the eye, you could just, it's been there since birth. But you can pick up SKs. Anywhere where you have a hair follicle, you can have an SK. That's why you don't have SKs when your palms are your feet, because we don't have hair follicles in those areas. Anywhere where there's a hair follicle, you can have an SK, because it's associated with the pilosebaceous unit itself. SK on the eyelid margin, SK here, SK on the ear. That's right, SKs on the ear. Do we have hair follicles on the ears, guys? Yeah, we got a few. That's because you don't actually lose your hair. As you age, it goes absorbed into your head and comes out your nose and ears. And so it's not actually shedding. It's coming through the brain and coming out my nose right now. So I enjoy that very much. And yes, you can have, we talked about basal. You can have uh, squamous. You can have basal. Basal on the eyelid, basal on the eyelid. A little bit of a basal on the eyelid, just a small presentation. A very unfortunate, uh, previously treated uh, with Mohs. They felt like they didn't get it all. It's become erosive. He's chosen to have no treatment for it and uh, usually wears a large patch over it, but a very, very sad case. Uh, not, not of neglect, but of um, choice by the patient to do nothing else after he's had multiple procedures done in the past. But look at this tiny little sucker right there. Again, look for, not at. Come in, this is a basal cell carcinoma on the eyelid margin. This is a basal cell carcinoma on the eyelid margin. All right? So periocular lesions can be basal squamous sebaceous gland carcinomas and melanomas. And the sebaceous gland I mentioned to you because it's often missed and it's very dangerous. This is something that the hallmark sign of this is someone has had a sty that keeps coming back, a chronic sty. What's on your eye? It's just a sty, you know. My doctor gives me some drops for it. It gets a little bit better, but it always comes back. How long have you had it? Well, it just, it, it hasn't gone away for a year. It gets better. Mmm, well, you need a biopsy that. Because if that's a sebaceous gland carcinoma, it's not a very good carcinoma to have. All right, it rises out of the oil gland, usually in the elderly, and you need to have that tissue stained to make sure they don't have something called muratory syndrome, right? If they have that, then it's a, it's a pretty big workup because sebaceous uh, carcinomas of the eyelids are highly associated with muratory syndrome. And if that's the case, these folks, this is a variant of Lynch syndrome, if, if you know what Lynch syndrome is. These folks, get a, they get a small workup if they have this. They get a uh, a CT and MRI of the abdomen to rule out cancer. They get a colonoscopy. They get a scope from the top and the bottom. They, they get the full cancer workup because of the chance of GI and urinal uh, uh, carcinomas being developed. All right? Now, your eccrine gland sits right here, and it's secreting, you know, clear, sterile sweat. And then your apocrine gland sits right here, and it's always attached to the apocrine unit or this whole hair follicle apparatus, which has got a you know, sebaceous gland, your apocrine gland, and this is also putting out sweat. This is where it gets uh, phagocytized by bacteria, it gets involved, and this is what causes odor to our sweat. The eccrine glands put out odorless sweat. But either one of these structures, like anything in the skin, can give you problems. And so when you have an eccrine hydrocystoma, hydro meaning water-like, cystoma means cyst-like, eccrine hydrocystomas can be little dilations, right? that can form around the eyes itself, tense, dome-shaped. These can have a, a bluish color to them. The apricot hydrocystomas are coming out, again, hair follicle-associated, so they're more likely to be on the eyelid margin where you have those hair follicles that are there. They're larger in size, a little bit bigger. We'll take a look at these two. And it can, so when you see ecron, smaller, not involved in the eyelid margin, and apricot, 
usually involves the eyelid margin, but can be other places as well. So you can see this eprocrine hydrocystomas around the eyelid, 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 but away from the eyelid, and here's one down on the cheek. All right? Eccrine, eccrine, which is not associated with the hair follicle, is the ones that we see that are bluish in color, typically bilateral. You see how this, it's, a, it's a more superficial presentation, so you can see that benign tumors, bluish tinge, fluid filled. These are the ones that can get better when you're in air conditioning or a cool compress. They, they shrink and then they get larger when you get hot. You don't see that with the apricot hydrocystones, only with the ecron. See this bluish tinge right here? And boom, boom. It could be subtle. Here, here, here. See these? Boom, boom, boom. Ecron hydrocystomas. Here's the ecron, superficial cystic structure, and the dermis. All right? Ecron hydrocystomas, 30 to 40, male to female, associated with Graves' disease sometimes, mostly on the face. All right? It can be associated with syndromes. And you just, the apricot hydrocystomas do not fluctuate in size, but the ecrons can, all right? You can poke them, curette them, works pretty well. Now, ecron, you may be saying, well, that ecron hydrocystoma is just a serangoma, isn't it? They are actually different things. That's why I point that out to you. Yes, the serangoma is part of the ecron gland, but it's in the upper epidermal portion of the ecron gland, as opposed to a lower presentation that forms the ecron hydrocystomas. So yes, they're multiple, they're symmetrical, more common in females, more common in African-Americans and Afro-Caribbeans, can be associated with Down syndrome if it's uh, eruptive, hot climates, and also the AC helps with these too. You can see these are serangomas here from the intraepidermal portion of the ecron gland, all right? Intraepidermal portion, all right? Solitary, when it's just on the face, it's not associated with anything at all. And see the serangomas, what a different presentation this is. Ductal elements all throughout the dermis. The classic description of, of this is a tadpole or comma sign, ductal elements, cystic ductal elements uh, throughout the, uh, the biopsy. Very different presentation from an ecron hydrocystoma versus a serangoma, both from the ecron gland, intraepidermal, and this is more deeper in the dermis. Make sense? And you can curette these serangomas as well. But if they're explosive, right, this person comes in, well, what is this? Acne vulgaris, papular atopic dermatitis, urticaria pigmentosa, allergic dermatitis, all of these things, eruptive xanthomas, ends up being this is eruptive serangomas, serangomata, and this is a case presented in the literature showing this eruptive uh, serangomata all over this upper, in fact, this is a common area for it. Another presentation in the armpit around the base of the neck. It, these can itch. It looks like kind of a papular atopic dermatitis. It's just not getting any better. And you need to be suspicious of that and go ahead and biopsy. Here it is at the base of the neck again. You don't instinctively think about eruptive syringomas in these uh, unless, you know, again, we're expanding differentials, right? Here it is, eruptive syringomata in the vaginal area. It can be around the face and other areas. When it's eruptive, it can be associated with Down syndrome, but no other associations. But you saw the list of associations with ecron hydrocystomas, a number of associations with those, but not the same with syringomas. If it's a cholesterol-like plaque, it's due to hyperlipidemia only half the time, is what the studies show. And you can have eruptive uh, xanthomas, that's typically associated with the hyperlipidemia, or you can have these solitary or around the eyes, typically not as uh, much associated with it. And you can see the xanthomatous eruption there. Again, different appearance than the serangomas, different appearance than the ecron hydrocystomas. Makes sense? Kind of beating you up with all this stuff. Xanthomas, 
apocrine hydrocystomas, ecron hydrocystomas with the bluish color, syringomas, here is our tender sty, here is our sebaceous carcinoma, the sty that keeps coming back, benign, thank goodness, blue nevus, basal cell carcinoma, SK. Periocular eruptions. Now this is contact dermatitis. How do I know? Because they bought a new makeup, put it on their eyes, and they broke out. It's pretty easy to, to nail that diagnosis down. But a lot of things can happen around the eyelids. And of course, the one that we're seeing more and more, so we're hearing more lectures about Dupixin and things like that, is you can have atopic dermatitis on the eye. You know, Dr. Treat is to, has some excellent slides and portion of his talks on this. But you can kind of see the difference in this sharply demarcated contact dermatitis, this kind of diffuse, itchy rubbing kind of spreads around here. Atopic dermatitis is probably the most misdiagnosed um, eruption around the eye itself. But remember, if you're testing, patch testing to rule out atopic, you have to do a patch test that's consistent with hand dermatitis. Because they've already come in and eliminated all, everything they put on their eye, right? So they've already done that. But anything that touches your hand eventually touches your eye. We all touch our eyes at some point, some people more than others. So you're looking for that chemical, that oil when they clean their gun, the rubber that's on the uh, steering wheel, something they do in the shop, not that often, that keeps their, air, their eyes flared. And if it gets better for seven or eight days and it flares again, it's because it's a product they're not using every day. All right? And with atopic dermatitis, the one side effect of untreated long-term is the keratoconus. Another board question. You can also have sebderm on the face, on the beard, and in the eyelid itself. You see the trapping of the sebum on the eyelashes itself, seborrheic dermatitis can do that. Didn't mean to go past it so fast in that area right there. Here, psoriasis around the eye, atypical presentation. Tom Habif allows me, allows me I mean, he's not with us any longer, but when he did a lecture 10 years ago, asked him if I could use this slide. This was an explosive eruption of psoriasis on the face on a gentleman he had seen before. He was astute enough to think this is unusual he did a blood panel saw the, uh, and diagnosed him with HIV. So this is a psoriasis-led diagnosis of HIV. No other indicators. So periocular can also be associated with perioral. Around the eye itself, all the same treatments you'd use for perioral can help with periocular, but it's difficult to treat, just like perioral is. Swelling of the eye, tender, zoster. Started off as atopic dermatitis, scabbed, tender, scaly, impetigo. It's impigenized now. Zoster, contact derm, psoriasis, sebderm, impetigo, periocular dermatitis, like perioral. DPN, heliotrope, Fave Rocachot, sty, chalazon, angiosarcoma, basal cell, xanthoma, sebaceous carcinoma, blue nevus, SK, apricot hydrocystoma, syringomas. You guys are nailing it. I just want to congratulate you. Okay. Let's look at inflammation on the eye as our last section. Obviously, conjunctivitis, uh, uh, conjunctivitis is something we're going to see. Of course, the primary care has picked this up usually way ahead of us. But it can be bacterial, it can be viral, it can be drug-induced, or it can be allergic. Drug-induced. And as I heard yesterday, I hope none of us ever have to deal with SJS or anything beyond it. But any time that you have conjunctivitis on the eye, you have to look at their medicines. 
Uh, and there's even a very nice printout on our abstract poster submitted about the rates of conjunctivitis with, uh, with Dupixent. You can look at that article that was submitted in, in, in part of our abstracts for this conference. So I'm not going to go through all those medicines, but you always have to think of it so they're not going to lead them down a path where you have to get them off of something. Because anytime you see conjunctivitis, you've got to think about rosacea, cicatrical uh, pemphigoid, should be pemphigoid, not pemphigus, bichette, drug-induced, all these things can have an allergic appearance to it. Because yes, they come in with, with ocular rosacea. And they can have blepharitis, they can have hyperemia, they can have telentagic formation on the lids, superficial keratopathy, all of those things. And as Julie Harper, who I think does the best lecture on ocular rosacea I've ever heard, we know that, uh, that rosacea can affect the eyes, but our patients don't. They really don't. So you have to ask about it if they have any rosacea symptoms at all. Do your eyes bother you? Do they feel gritty? Are you prone to styes? Do you feel something calling your eye all the time? Why? Because 2016, not that long ago, 92% of folks reported having eye symptoms, grittiness, irritation, dryness, who had, who had been diagnosed with rosacea on the face, 86% watery bloodshot, 72% of these folks said they had never been treated for ocular rosacea or even asked about it. This is not primary care data. This is dermatology data, all right? So we're not doing a good job of screening for this and helping our patients with this. Blepharitis is the hallmark of, of this disease when it's associated with, uh, with ocular rosacea. This inflammation and trapping of scale and debris at the base of the eyelashes in this area here. And you'll see the blepharitis. You see this buildup here. It can look like sebderm on the eye uh, that we just looked at, but it's deeper and it's more inflamed. And there's all kinds of ways you can treat it. One of the interesting things is flaxseed oil capsules. Pretty good study that shows that taking flaxseed oil, because it helps manufacture prostaglandins, can reduce inflammation in the eye, and it's a pretty safe way of going about it. You can Google search that article and look at that. Managing ocularization, good lid, lid hygiene, lid scrubs. And then we know we have treatments, oral doxy, topical cyclosporin, another thing you can add to your pocket there. You're getting a busy pocket here, liquid cocaine, you got your liquid 5-FU, you got your tolidine dye, so you can, you can diagnose those AKs. And did you see on that AK slide, one of the treatments is cryotherapy. If you want to cryotherapy the eyeball, if you think there's you know, something on there, if you don't want to use your 5-FU, I don't recommend that. And now you've got topical cyclosporin that you can use. So, I mean, there's a lot of different things out there, but it all starts with just common sense. Warm compresses, soak in the eye. Gentle cleansers, I like these better than uh, your Johnson's baby shampoo, even though it's no more tears, it still has surfactants, it's still a soap, it still can dry the eye out, and some of these ocular scrubs have no surfactants and have no soap component to them at all. And this is, they're gonna take an eye Q-tip, dampen the Q-tip in water, put it onto your, to the, one of these products and scrub it around the eye, it makes a big difference. You can use eye drops, there, everything over the counter works just great. You don't have to become too complicated. But the biggest contributor to this is this myobian gland dysfunction. And this is the number one thing that's changed uh, the course of treatment for me in doing research for this talk a year ago. Because this wasn't even much on my radar at all. And maybe all you guys have been doing it, and that's the fun thing about uh, practicing going to conferences, is you realize how much stuff you don't know. I've, I'm constantly realizing I, there's lots of stuff I should have known a long time ago. I mean, you feel comfortable if someone says, this is a brand new treatment, just came out two weeks ago. We're like, okay. But then someone comes up and say, I've been doing this for 10 years, and I'm thinking, wow, I got a lot of people suffering from that. Why did I know that? But, but with myoban gland dysfunction, you can significantly help patients who have chronic ocular rosacea. 
because it's the clogging of these myopian glands that causes the biggest problem. And they will have these symptoms of grittiness, itchy eyes, and blurry vision. How do you do that? Well, as a caveat, folks who have been on isotretinoin significantly increased risk of having long-term myopian gland dysfunction. And it may not, they may tell you my eyes are okay, they're not that dry, but it's the first question ophthalmologists ask when they come in with chronic eye problems, have you ever been on Accutane? And we're talking a decade ago. Significantly increases the risk of them having myopian gl uh, uh, gland dysfunction. All right? And it, the, the best way to do it is through gland probing. They have this new machine called LipiFlow, which some ophthalmologists have in their office. It's this pulsation of warm water against the eye. It kind of massages the eyelid. It expresses stuff out of the myobian glands. You can use supplementation. Here comes our cyclosporin eye drops, which help out with this a little bit too. But here, but you can just order this cap, the syringe cap. It's got this little tiny blade. You can pull the eyelids down, and you can just puncture at all of these swollen myobian glands. I'm saying you can because I've never done it. And look what happens. And then they, they park this. The back end of a pair of uh, Addison forceps is what that is. And they press against it. And so, I mean, I'm, I look at this and say, all right, Dr. Pimple Popper, let's see you do this. All right? So, but this actually, as I talk to my ophthalmologist locally about doing this, because they do this in their clinic, they say it's very easy. It's very, very easy. They don't even numb the eye to do it. You know, and so I was like, wow. So you can see, you can see if this is all sitting in there, I mean, these people have instantaneous relief. It's like puncture and assist, and then that pressure comes off. And so, and, and it, it can build up, but with good lid hygiene, it'll keep it from, from clogging again. So I like referring these patients for this treatment. Find out if your local folks do it. But with ocularization in general, cyclosporine drops, actually very safe, do not have all the side effects that cyclosporin has that we have to worry about. And as good studies have shown, small in 38 adults, cyclosporin drops twice a day for three months versus doxycycline, 100 milligrams twice a day for a month and then step them down to once a day for two months and look at the difference in the two. You can see that 100% of the patients at the start had burning, stinging, and light sensitivity. At the end of the three months of using the cyclosporin drops, it dropped down to 21%, 47, and 10 when you look at the folks that run the doxycycline, 74% still had burning and stinging at the end of the three months, all right? And 21% still had uh, at light sensitivity. So it's significantly better and maybe a good safer alternative than keeping them on antibiotics long-term with all the talk we have about resistance building to them, okay? Also, DMSO, this dimethyl sulfoxide combined in this, uh, this new spray solution, good study came out using this as a spray on the eyes for ocular rosacea. They had a complete resolution case. Now it's, now it's in the larger trial. This is a, derma, a dermatologist that developed this product and has proprietary you know, patent on it. And it'll probably, probably come, come to market sometime because it's a great uh, treatment for ocular rosacea as well. Okay, so ocular rosacea, bachettes, drug-induced, all these things can cause it. And the big one you don't want to miss is when you start to see this scarring that forms on the edge of the eye. When they come in with ocular cicatricial pemphigoid, they can begin to lose this bulbar fornix and it gets scarring in the eye and it can be very detrimental. It's relatively rare, but when you see it, you don't want to miss it. You see the scarring that takes place here? This is called a symbletheron. Here's the term right here, symbletheron. And you get this cicatricial, which cicatrix means scar. Entropion, which means turning in. Ectropion means the eyelid falling out or turning out. 
causes corneal damage and ulceration and ultimately leads to blindness. Scar, blister. Now, it's, it's a systemic inflammatory disease, and you can see when you do your DIF, where's it going to line up if you listen to the lecture yesterday? Since this is a pemphigoid and not a pemphigus, it lines up at the, in a nice sharp line at the basement layer, right, that DEJ junction, and that's where you're going to see it line up with your IgG, IgA, and C3. Symptoms, everything. They itch, they tear, they get dry eyes. The diagnosis is delayed. Look at this. Come in, you decide. Eye looks pretty normal. Eyelids don't look red. My eyes just irritate me all the time. Look, look at all this. But you pull this down and you begin to see this symblethron formation right here. Instantly, instantly, they have to be referred for a biopsy for DIF. Instantly. All right, because this can progress. It can be indolent and slow and then rapidly uh, progress. So when you see this, you have to be very careful of it. Now, I, I put a note here. Beta blockers and a few drugs can sometimes cause a pseudo-pemphigoid uh, appearance. Very, very rare. But it's, but it's worth asking about the medications. Okay? Again, you start to see this formation. Lashes turning in. Increased risk for women, usually over the age of 50. You've got to consider it. And it can stage, go through four stages, where it's just stage one, chronic conjunctivitis. Stage two, you're losing the fornix. There's not a nice deep um, gutter that forms between the bulbar and the papebral conjunctiva. Then you begin at stage three to pick up symblethron formation, and then you get full scarring, surface keratinization of the eye. And then that leads to total blindness in that eye. While there's a treatment paradigm for using cyclophosphamide, which is a little bit better than dapsone and a little bit better than prednisone by itself, by far, rituximab is now the drug of choice for this. Just skip over that second one, because there are some experts who now say that to use anything but rituximab actually may be malpractice. That's a bold statement that I heard from, from a podium at a derm conference about a year and a half ago. But what it's saying is that rituximab is so good for this and changes this around to use anything else. Um, would just be a disservice to, to your patients. All right, the last chronic conjunctivitis, 45-year-old Palestinian male, chronic conjunctivitis. Again, you're not just gonna look at, you're gonna look for. What other things do you wanna look for? What other questions do you wanna ask? Do you have any ulcers in your mouth? Do you have any sores in your mouth? Do you have any ulcers on your penis? Do you have any ulcers anywhere else, perianal area? Anywhere else, anytime there's a problem with the eye, ask about all the other mucosal services. Because whenever you get an ulcer that's on the penis, chronic conjunctivitis, an ulcer in the mouth, that is always going to point you towards machettes. Always going to point you towards machettes. Why is it important to have machettes on your list? Why? You can see all these examples of it. Here's some perianal lesions here in the mouth, upper lip. Here's the eye. Penal lesion here. Why is it important? Because people die of machettes when it's not diagnosed. 74% of Israeli patients in a study led to blindness in six to 10 years, even being on treatment. Bichette's 40% mortality rate is quoted in some studies. This is an aggressive systemic autoimmune disorder, right? Cause is unknown, but probably in the third or fourth quarter of this year, Celgene's gonna get uh, the FDA indication for treatment of Bichette's with a Tesla because we now believe it's primarily driven by the cyclic AMP and the PDE4 pathway. And so they've got some decent data out now, and, uh, and I don't represent them in any way, but we'll just kind of keep, keep your ear uh, you know, to the ground and see if that's gonna, gonna, gonna take place. What was interesting about uh, 
talking to folks about that is that the male to female ratio around the world is significantly higher for males. I mean, look, 24 to 1 in 1,700 patients in one study in Iran and Turkey, 16 to 1. So it's of high Mediterranean um, descent, Egyptian, Israeli. I saw the several cases of this when I practiced in Long Island, and I had not seen it before, just practicing in rural Georgia. But what we're finding in the U.S. now is that that it's almost a one-to-one -one ratio of female to male. And so I don't know, there's been some theory on whether or not this ratio is maybe because of some cultural differences on exposure to healthcare for women versus men and some, some of those cultures, I don't know. But we're definitely seeing a difference in, in our studies, we're seeing a much higher prevalence in women. It's not one-to-one, -one, but it's certainly not 21 and 16 to one. Uh, predominant, so you got to think about it. Don't think about it as just a male thing, which is what's been lectured on for quite a while. All right, involves all of those areas, vital organ involvement, CNS involvement, large artery involvement, topical steroids, prednisone, colchicine, imuran, Remicade, I found a study on, Embrel, I found a study on, interferon alpha, thalidomide. Anytime that you have a disease that has all of these potential treatments with only one or two patients it works on means nothing works great. Nothing works great. And if we do have a PDE4 inhibitor that works, it'll be added to here, because it's not like it's knocking it out of the park, it's just a, another potential try it, because we want to get as much on board as we can to help these folks from progressing. Okay, are you ready for your final test? Are you ready? Church, speak it out with me here. Congenital nevi. Conjunctival melanoma, leukoplakia, squamous, hyperplasia, pterygium, panicula, uveal melanoma, partial heterochromia. You guys are so smart. DPN, dermatosis, papillosa nigra, heliotrope sign, 5 a show, sty, right, horiolum, schlazon, contact dermatitis, angiocarcinoma. Zoster, contact dermatitis, psoriasis, periocular derm, impetigo, sebderm. Xanthoma, sebaceous gland carcinoma, blue nevus, SK, apocrine hydrocystoma, syringomas, okay, basal cell, Stephen Johnson, drug-induced conjunctivitis, Bichette's, ocular rosacea, symblethron formation, third stage of cicatricial, ocular cicatricial pemphigoid. Now raise your right hand. I deputize you as ophthalmology deputies, as a representative of the STPA. Yeah, I, I told you that I came up with 30 or 40 things that you could go through. Well, if you look at all of the things that we just did, it was 38. Those are 38 things you just named. So your differential list is definitely longer than one. And if, and if, that's, if I've expanded it from one and you can expand it just in your brain to at least 10 of those, then mission accomplished. Any questions?
Oh, that's right, evaluation. Put number six. You want to start moving? This is a good song, considering I went to William & Mary. And William & Mary's in this song. All right, are any questions gonna come up? I have two minutes on my timer. Anything at all, Brian? Ooh, there are some. Do melanoma patients need to see an ophthalmologist or would optometry be okay? Well, I tend to send them to ophthalmologists uh, simply because if treatment or biopsy needs to be done, they're the ones who do it. At least in our area, I don't have any optometrists, and I, I don't think they're necessarily trained to, uh, but I don't have any optometrists that will do biopsy. They will refer to their ophthalmologist that they're associated with or they like. So knowing that, if you think something needs to potentially be biopsied, go ahead and put them in the hands of someone who can do it in their office. So go for the ophthalmologist. Hydrocystoma versus syringoma. Okay, so um, the treatments are actually pretty similar for all these. They, they, you start off with, with curatage. You can take a number 18 blade and nick the surface of these. If it's an ecron, you know, the bluish in color, you just see that it, they instantly deflate, instantly deflate. And you can kind of poke those. I tend to do two or three on the outside as, and tell the patient, hey, let's just do a couple of these. I know you've got 20 on each eye. I want you to see how they heal and how, they like, how you like it. I have them take a picture of it on their phone. I then treat three or four of them and I'll, I'll use my little um, uh, 18 gauge, or what's the, the hair removal? Curette. Like a curette, no, not, not a curette, what's the name of the tiny little, um, not, not an epi-blade, that just, just the very tip of an 11, and then, and I don't, and now listen, if, yes, you can send these for path. Again, if you are worried about something that looks strange, then certainly you can numb and do a tiny shave biopsy of these, and then just cauterize the base of it. So, but as you saw, the Ekron his, um, hydrocystomas are, are associated with some syndromes, but typically those syndromes are already there, and this is just a finding within the syndrome. It's rare that you're gonna have someone come in in their teens in older adult, and you're gonna diagnose them with a, with a syndrome that's typically present in the first couple of years of life, and so that's association by the other way. So uh, if it looks suspicious, send it in. Uh, describe topical application. How close to the eye can topicals be applied? Okay, with ocular rosacea. Well, I guess that kind of depends on what you're applying. If you're going to uh, uh, write for an ophthalmic ointment, then it doesn't matter if it touches the eye, and that's what I tend to do. If I want them to be on something that's anti-inflammatory, antihistamine, leukotriene blocker, or steroidal, I always try to pick ones that are ophthalmic. And sometimes I have to get on the phone with the pharmacist because they've all changed names. None of them, there's nothing branded out almost anymore. They're all generics, FMLA, Cordo, Optic, kind of all have these different names. And so I get on there and I say, this is what I want. I don't want any steroid in this thing. I just want this and this. What, what do they have? And the pharmacist tells me um, what's there. And so if I go with an ophthalmic, I don't have to worry about it touching the eyeball. But to answer your question, if you're going to use something like Elidil for atopic dermatitis on the eye or something like that, I just tell them just park it right up close to underneath where the eyelash is and just go right across the top and right underneath. And um, I don't like to do it right before bed because then people rub it on their pillow or rub their eyes right when they go to sleep. I like them to do it earlier in the day. So if you're gonna do it twice a day, once in the morning, and the second time, and do it right at dinner so you've got three or four hours afterwards before you go to bed. And I know you can worry about washing it off later, but if it's on there three or four hours, it's, it's pretty good. 
Um, any others or is that it? Brian was, okay, that's all of them. All right, if, uh, that's a lot I gave you, so if you have other questions, catch me afterwards. This has been a presentation of Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs.